1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2. If you go to Revelation and go back toward Matthew, you'll find it. Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. You're right there, chapter 2, 1 and 2. As we continue our series, That You May Know. What is it that we need to know? John wants us to understand truth about God, truth about Jesus, God's Son, truth about us and the doctrine of sin. He wants to unveil the false teaching with biblical truth, and we see that happening again uh, as we look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2. As you're there, I'll read along, uh, read aloud and ask that you follow along. 1 John 2, verse 1. It says, My little children... These things I write to you so that you may not, what? Sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the whole world. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd speak truth into our heart and mind. And you'd give us courage to embrace that truth and obey what it means in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we read the New Testament and study, we understand that for the children of God, those who are born again, those who are Christians, thankfully we are no longer slaves to sin. We're given a spiritual means and empowerment to have victory over sin. Paul's strong command in Romans chapter 6 echoes this truth when he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as to, as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have master over you. For you are not under the law, but you are under grace. That's good news, isn't it? You need to hold on to some truths right here. Repentance from sin and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ results in salvation. Being born again or regeneration, receiving spiritual life in Christ. At the point of our salvation, the Bible teaches us that the penalty of our sin, which is death, is paid in full. In other words, your sin, past, present, and future, is paid for by Christ and His atoning sacrifice on the cross. When we are saved, we then are justified by faith in Christ, or we're declared righteous to God in Christ not based upon our works, but based upon His character and His work on the cross. Therefore, we have peace with God. That's Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. However, we know this. The presence of sin and the appeal to sin is still real in our life. It doesn't go away. We still struggle with sin. We realize that all of us do. We struggle with sin because of the flesh desires that are within us. We struggle with sin because of the sinful world around us that we live in. And we struggle with sin because of the enemy who fights against us. 
but because the bondage of sin is broken in Christ and what he did on the cross, we begin to experience a new work as we become those new creations in Christ. It is a work of the Holy Spirit of God called sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God in our life as we surrender to his power at work within us to which we become more and more free from sin and we grow to be more and more like Christ in character and conduct. It is a process. It is a lifelong process. Now, at the point of our salvation, our regeneration, our new birth, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 18 that we are set free from sin. That means the bondage has been broken. We're no longer bound to sin. We don't always have to sin. There is a choice we can make by the power of God at work within us not to sin. And so Paul says, based upon being in Christ and identifying with him and his life, his death and burial and resurrection, since we are identified not only with his death, dying to sin, but his resurrection, raised to walk in a new kind of way, now in verse 11 of Romans chapter 6, we can consider or reckon ourselves dead to sin, to the bondage of sin, but alive to God through Christ Jesus. Because we're no longer in bondage to sin now, sin has no dominion over us. So the initial break from the power of sin means this, that children of God, faithful followers of Christ, are no longer ruled or dominated by sin, and we no longer love to sin. So if your life is dominated or characterized by habitual sinful lifestyle, Houston, you've got a problem. If you still enjoy love to sin and you sin and it doesn't bother you, I would venture to say based upon the truth of Scripture, you are not a genuine child of God. You may be a church member, but you're not born again. So our lives are not, as believers, are not identified through an habitual life of sin. Let's come back to that process of sanctification, growing to be more like Christ in character and conduct. The Bible also teaches here on earth we will never be completely free from sin. That's why 1 John 1.8 said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That was last week. That's why the wisest man that's walked the face of the earth outside of Christ, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, not, uh, who does good and never sins. Now, Jesus understood this. And as he was calling men, ordinary men, to come follow him and he'd make them fishers of men, one thing that he taught them is that you need to learn to pray and pray continually, forgive us our, guess what, sins, because we're not going to reach sinless perfection on earth. Now, about this time in the letter of 1 John, as John is writing to expose false teaching and counter false teaching with truth, as John is writing to reassure believers who are growing confused about sinful lifestyles, there may be two extremes and dangers in their thought process. One of the real dangers was this. Some might be thinking, and they may be in church today, well, if sin is a reality and it's impossible for me to live a sinless life, then why bother? 
it's no big deal. After all, that's the way I was created. That's the way God made me. Ever heard that? After all, Christians aren't perfect. We're forgiven. There's some truth in that statement, but there is a dangerous, dangerous trap to ever fall into the mindset, dear child of God, that sin is no big deal. We know sin is a big deal to God because the Lord God Almighty gave His only Son to come and be born of the Virgin Mary, knowing that He would one day go to a cross and die a humiliating death and shed His blood, not because He was deserving or guilty, but because He was taking the place of guilty sinners like you and me. I would venture to say to God who gave up His only Son, sin's a big deal. And for the church, the body of Christ, we would do well to embrace the biblical understanding that we're all sinners and sin's a big deal to God. There's another danger, though, and it's like this. As Christians, we might hear people say or say ourselves, I have liberty in Christ. I'm no longer under the law, and so I can do what I want to do because my sin is forgiven, and if I sin, I will be forgiven. Dr. David Allen, I like what he says about this. He, he calls this the Rasputin syndrome, R-A-S-P-U-T-I-N. Rasputin was a Russian monk, and he was a religious and political confidant of Empress Alexandra of the Romanov family in Russia. And what he did is misinterpret Scripture out of Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and verse 21. When the Apostle Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit, said these words, Where sin increased, grace abounded more. So Rasputin was rationalizing his own sinful behavior and says, you know, here's what this means. When we sin as Christians, we provide God an opportunity to exercise and magnify His grace. So the more we sin, the more the grace of God is magnified. And so Paul says, time out, Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. Just because grace abounds, does that really mean that sin abounds more? Knowing that there would be Rasputins in the world and a Rasputin syndrome among the people of God in the church, he answered it for us. He didn't leave it up for us to answer. He said, absolutely not. Just because grace abounds does not mean sin should abound more. Wrong thinking. So as we look in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Remember what John's objective is, to expose false teaching, to reassure believers. Number one on your notes today, the purpose stated is in verse 1 of chapter 2. John starts out, these things I write to you. But before he said that, there's an address to those he's writing to. My dear what? Children, my little children. Uh, John has a strong love for the people that he is writing to. Now, John can call anybody just about dear children because he is well into his 80s by now. He is an old man. He's the last surviving apostle at this time. And so just uh, logically, age-wise, he can get away with saying, my dear children, because he's probably the elder. But more than that, it's that pastor's heart. It's the shepherd's heart of this apostle, apostle who has invested his life and the truth of the words of Christ into a people that he wants them to remain true to the Word of God. So with that pastor's heart, 
that term of endearment, affection. He says, my dear children, these things I write to you. Logical question. What things is he referring to? You go back to verses 5 through 10 and John itemizes what he is saying. Last week we looked at three if we say statements. Talked about two in depth and then held the third one to begin today. But in verse 6, look at it. It's the first if we say. He said, and now if we say we have fellowship, remember he's already said God is light, morally perfect, holy, holy, holy. In him there is no darkness at all, none whatsoever, no shadow at all in God. So he has a holy character. And if we say we have fellowship with him, but walk in darkness, that's the error, that's the mistake. Some were saying with their mouth right things, but their lives were not backing up what they were professing. And he said, there are consequences when you live that way. Say that you're in fellowship with God, but yet live sinfully. What are those consequences? You're lying, and you do not practice the truth. And then in verse 7, he made an appeal. He said, however, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we live trying to live a life that is away from sin and not sinful, here are the assurances that we have. There are two of them. He said, if you walk in the light, live a holy life as he is holy, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Does sin impact our life? Yes, it does. Vertically, it interrupts fellowship. Horizontally, it interrupts fellowship in the body of Christ. But then we have verse 8, the second if we say. He said, if we say that we have no sin, that's the error, a mistake, saying you're without sin, here are the consequences. You're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. What is the truth? The Word of God. What does it say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's the appeal in verse 9. If we confess our sin, agree with God that sin is there and real, then the assurances are two. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our, our, our sins. And number two, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Not only do we receive forgiveness, but the stain is washed away. Brings us to the third, if we say, statement. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, kind of repeats that, that uh, era of sinless perfection, that you can reach it on earth. There are two consequences when you say that. Number one, you make God out to be a liar. And number two, his word is not in you. Again, you do not practice the truth. The truth is not in you. God's word is not in you when you claim to be without sin. So understanding the biblical doctrine of sin is something we talked about last week, which basically is this, all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God and we cannot... Uh, forgive ourselves we cannot rescue ourselves from that sinful nature but here is his appeal chapter 2 verse 1 his appeal is this these things I write to you that you may not sin that's John's purpose he said I want you to live a life that is different here's the assurance though we'll unpack it in a minute but if you do sin we have an advocate with the father who is Jesus the righteous one. And number two, he himself is the propitiation for our sin. So John is saying, I'm writing so that you may not sin. 
In, in John's pastoral prayer for his readers, he wants them to live a life that is not dominated by sin. That's the key word. His desire for those who are in Christ is to live a life that is set apart from those who are lost. If you walk in the light, you need to live a life that's set apart from sin and from those who are lost. And, and John is saying you need to live differently. Here's the reality. In Christ, we are saved from sin, not so that we can sin. We cannot reach sinless perfection in this life, yet we're commanded not to sin. And when we try to rationalize that, we go, oh, my word, we are really between a rock and a hard place, right? Here's the point. Our goal, our command is to live day by day without committing in thought, in word, or deed sin. That's what we're called to do and be. Walk in the light as He is in the light. Be holy as He is holy. To live a life set apart, different from that of a lost world. Now, that's a tall order. Faithful followers of Christ ought to be a people, though, who sin less after salvation than we did before we're saved. So just time out in inventory time. Is your mind, your thought process about sinful behavior different after salvation than it was before you're saved? When you sin today as a child of God, do you sin and then conviction come upon you strongly or do you sin and it doesn't bother you? And so you need to ask yourself those questions. John's saying that in Christ, the trajectory of our lives should be toward holiness or sinning less. Sin is a serious thing, and we dare not take it uh, lightly. We've got to take it seriously. John is a realist, though. He understood the tension that we're talking about. He knows that even faithful followers of Christ do sin occasionally. Is there a testimony and amen out there? Yes. Thank you, Ryan. You and me. We got it. We... That is why he uses that word if. If anyone does sin, who is anyone? In this context, it's any one of us. Who is of us? In this context, it's anyone like John. What's he like? He's a believer. He's born again. He's a child of God. So if any one of us, any one of us who are really saved, born again, John says that if you do sin, then we have a provision. Now, he doesn't qualify anyone. It can be the most mature believer. It can be the brand new believer. It can be the sins that we uh, categorize as the major sins that are on the big not-to-do list, or it can be those minor sins. He doesn't qualify the anyone nor the sin. So anyone of any sin. He said, if any one of us sins, there is number two on your notes, the provision. The provision that we have as children of God in Jesus who is our advocate. Why is it that we can have forgiveness of sin? John says it is solely because we have an advocate and his name is Jesus. That word advocate means the one who comes alongside in time of need. Means one who comes to help. As we see the if we say statement, there's kind of that if then statement going on. If this happens, then this happens. 
It's a cause and effect phrase here. If sin happens, that's the cause, then the advocate Jesus is there with the Father for us believers. That's the effect. So what happens when truly born-again believers fall short and sin? When we sin, we have an advocate who is with the Father, and He is there for us. That's the effect. So with this insight, we're going to kind of unpack what John is saying. We have to, though, take that word paraclete and see it in light of the gospel. John chapter 14 and 15 and 16, he uses that same word and he refers to the Holy Spirit of God. And, and the Holy Spirit of God in the gospel narrative is called our helper. But the same Greek word in 1 John is translated advocate, and that's an important distinction, and correctly translated advocate. It means not only the one who comes alongside to help us and lift us up, but the one who lends his voice for our defense, the one who speaks on our behalf. There is only one who can speak on the behalf of guilty sinners, and that is the one who paid the price on the cross. His name is Jesus. He is our advocate. Here's the reality. We have two advocates. We have the advocate of the Holy Spirit of God who abides with us and within us. He is the Spirit of truth. Therefore, when a child of God sins, conviction is real. We are disturbed. Sin is an offense. It's an offense to our Father, and it becomes an offense to us. We cannot sin successfully. Number two, we have an advocate when we sin who is at the right hand of the Father. And at the right hand of the Father, He is Jesus Christ who stands to give a defense of us. And Hebrews 7.25 reminds us that it's Jesus Christ who speaks to God on our behalf, our high priest, our advocate, always lives to make intercession for us. You need to write down Hebrews 7.25. Go study that because we have a superior high priest. Most every evening after the 10 o'clock news, my dad's going to change the channel, and here it comes. Perry Mason's on again. I remember him doing that when I was growing up into the home. There's one thing I remember about Perry Mason. I, I hadn't watched many of those episodes from start to finish um, but what I remember, he didn't lose very much. In fact, there are some that say, in reality, on the set, Perry Mason never lost. And, and there are others say, maybe once or twice he lost. Here's what you can take to the bank. Our advocate, our defense attorney, Jesus, the righteous one, has never lost a case, and he never will. He is, as John says, the righteous one. So Christ's righteousness contrast with our sinfulness to people, to believers then, who are feeling guilty and condemned. To believers who are feeling guilty and condemned, John is offering reassurance. And here is the reassurance that when you do sin and fall short, even as a faithful follower of Christ, if you're truly a child of God, the Holy Spirit is going to convict and, des and your desire is going to be to confess and turn from that sin, repent. But there's one at the right hand of the Father who's going to be your advocate and make an appeal on your behalf. Now, you need to understand something about our enemy, the prosecuting attorney against us. He does not play fair. Have you figured that out yet? Here's what James tells us. He baits the hook of sin. He makes sin appealing. 
He makes it pleasurable. It will be temporarily, but it's like he baits a barbed hook. Any fishermen out there know what a barbed hook is? Anybody ever got one stuck in your hand? Maybe on your face or in your head? I've seen all of those. Barbed hooks hurt worse coming out than they did going in. And here's how the devil plays. He, he baits that barbed hook of sin, and he entices believers to think, that you can sin and get away with it, that you can justify that sin because your circumstances are unique or just this one time or nobody else is looking or I'm not as bad as they are. Whatever lie he tells us, once we bite that bait, the barbed hook sinks deep. And when the hook goes in, it is destructive. But then the devil changes his tune. Not only does he invite and say, you can do this, you're forgiven, uh, it's not going to uh, rob you of your salvation and entice you by your own sinful desires. Once you sin, he's going to lie again, and he's going to say, God can't forgive you. You promised him you'd never do that again, and he'll hold you bondage in a life of guilt, and, and he'll hold you bondage in being condemned, understanding wrongly that God's forgiveness does not reach you when you fell short, even as a believer. And so he doesn't play fair, does he? The Bible says, His name shall be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's only one that pleases God completely, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul said this in Romans 8, who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and is pleading for us. He's our advocate. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forevermore to intercede with God on our behalf. We've got the best defense attorney, don't we? In a courtroom, there are about four people that you can identify quickly. There's the judge. There's the prosecutor. There's a defense attorney, and there's a defendant. If we can use our imagination just a moment, in the spiritual realm, God is the judge. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is just in all that he does. Satan, the enemy, the liar and father of all lies, is the prosecuting attorney. The defendant. The defendant is you, is me. But the defense attorney is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's how the Bible may say to us that it plays out. Revelation 12.10 identifies Satan as the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses them, according to Scripture, before the throne of God day and night. Who's the brethren? Those who are children of God. Why? What, what, what reason does the enemy have to accuse us? We're born again. The penalty's been paid in full. Because we still fall short. And here's how it will go when old Tim Cox is, is enticed by his own sinful flesh. And I take that bait and I fall to temptation or I fall short and I sin in thought, in word or deed. That old liar, the devil, the prosecuting attorney runs to the holy God who is the judge. And he says, I told you he wasn't worth much. I told you he couldn't hold up. I told you he couldn't stand the test. I told you if you just let me have him for a little bit and let me entice him, then he's going to fall flat on his face. I told you he's just one decision away from 
And, and then he's just hammering and accusing the brethren over and over again. But I have you to know, church, according to Scripture, there is an advocate, a defense attorney, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he stands and he tells the prosecuting attorney, you sit down, you be quiet. He is not yours. He is mine. I paid the penalty of his sin. Yes, he is as guilty as they come, but his penalty has been paid in full. I am the perfect one who died in his place. And I have cleansed him. And not only did I clean him up, I clothed him with my righteousness. So as he stands in this courtroom, he stands uncondemned in the righteousness that I gave him. Not in his merit, but in my merit. So Satan, sit down, be quiet, go away. You are a defeated foe. That's hallelujah. What a Savior. That happens. Spiritual realm. He's not only our advocate, the Bible says he is the propitiation of our sin. That's a big word, isn't it? I'm glad I said it. Almost right. Verse 2, John explains why Jesus can function as our advocate, why he is able to forgive our sin. Verse 2 begins with an emphatic pronoun. Look at it real close. And he himself. That means Jesus and nobody else. It means he himself and he alone is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for sins. No one else except Jesus can be the atoning sacrifice for sins. Why? No one else but Jesus has lived a perfect life. Though tempted in every way as we are, the Bible says he never, ever sinned. Not in thought, not in word, and not in deed. Jesus is the one who through his death on the cross satisfies the honor and justice of a holy God. Jesus' mercy and love extends to the one who sinned against God, that's me, and violated God's honor and justice. He not only was, but he is, present tense, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We may keep running up the debt, but he keeps paying the debt off. He can He's Jesus. He's the atoning sacrifice. What does John mean when he uses this strange word, propitiation? It's a word that's used rarely in Scripture, only four times in the Bible as a noun. It's kind of difficult to wrap around the real meaning, but I like this translation of it. Uh, Jesus is the propitiation of our sin. It means that he is the atoning sacrifice. It means he is able to be our advocate and to forgive sin because he himself became the sacrifice for our sin. That's what gives him the privilege. Let's unpack it a little more. Four words. Wrath, justice, holiness, and love. Those four words describe the character of this sovereign God. God is a God of love, but he's also a God of holiness and justice. One doesn't diminish the other. Because sin is an offense to God's holy nature as well as His sovereign rule of the universe, He has righteous anger toward sin and toward those who sin. Paul stated in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The sin problem is a universal problem, which means if you were to look around in this room, there's no one in the room exempt from the sin problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You cannot atone for your sin or forgive yourself for your sins. If your sins are to be forgiven, someone who is without sin must pay the price for your sin. There's only one of those, and his name is Jesus, our advocate and the propitiation of our sin. 
So our only hope of escape from the just penalty for sin is if someone who is not himself under the penalty of sin stands in our place as our substitute. His name is Jesus. That's what he did on the cross. So there's only one in the entire universe who could do that and only one who has done that. No other name, no other person save Jesus Christ could provide the right sacrifice. God is a holy God. His righteous anger stands against all sin. His justice must be served in such a way that sin is paid, penalized in full. Jesus paid the price when he died on the cross to satisfy the penalty of the law that condemned us. Why did Jesus die in our place? Why was he our substitute? Why was he willing to take the wrath of God upon himself so that we could be set free? For God so loved you and me that he gave his only begotten son, the love of God, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So those four words, love, justice, holiness, wrath, they converge at the cross. God's holiness makes sin an insult to his character. God's justice demands payment for sin. God's love compels him to provide a way for lost sinners. Because of God's love, he sent his son, Jesus, into the world to die on the cross for the world's sins. God's wrath was poured out in judgment on Jesus. That was meant for us. He took our place. He bore our sin on the cross as our substitute. So by his death on the cross for sin... Jesus satisfied the wrath and justice of God. So when John says, Jesus is the propitiation of your sins, he means that sin has been expiated, its penalty has been removed, and God's wrath is likewise propitiated, that is, turned away. And so it's expiation and propitiation. You can dig in that in your theological books. And so it's real. Jesus is the propitiation not only for our sin as believers. Hold on, church. But John didn't stop there. He said, not for ours only, those of us who are already in, but for those of the whole world. This verse raises a big question that is pregnant with theological implications. I get a lot of lookups at that word. Um, we ask the question, for whose sin did Christ die? That is a fair question. There are two views on the subject as to the extent of the atonement of Christ. Some believe that Jesus died only for the sins of those who believe in Christ. This view traditionally is called limited atonement. It is the L and tulip, if you're familiar with that. Others believe that Jesus died for the sins of all people. In other words, unlimited atonement. There are only two possible views on the question of the extent of atonement. So what does John mean when he says that Jesus is the propitiation of the sins of the whole world? Good question. I'm glad you asked it. We'll go in with answer. Those who hold limited atonement position suggest that when John used the phrase the whole world, he does not mean all people in the world. Rather, this phrase is given one of three interpretations in limited atonement. First, some say John intends the phrase not for our sins only to refer to Jewish believers only and the phrase for the sins of the whole world to refer to Gentile believers. 
Second, some say the phrase for the sins of the whole world refers to all kinds of people, but not to all people individually, just kind of a generic mindset. Third, some say world here means the world of the elect, those who are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. There are, in my opinion, major problems with all three of these interpretations. It is impossible to determine, first, that John's letter was addressed solely to Jewish believers. In fact, most scholars suggest that the readers were mainly Gentile, or at the very least, a mixture of Jewish-Gentile believers. The use of the adjective, whole, W-H-O-L-E, modifying the word world, makes it difficult to interpret the phrase as referring to all kinds of people rather than all people individually. Are you still there? Are you still with me? It also seems that the word world is never used by John here in this letter or anywhere else to mean only the world of the elect. So here's where I land. A face value reading of John, 1 John 2 and verse 2 would understand the whole world to be a reference to the whole world, all humanity. This is based on two things. First, the use of the phrase, for the sins of the whole world in this context, indicates all the people in the world. World in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. Same word in the context there means all of the unsaved humanity. This is important because contextually in 1 John, the word world never means only the elect. Second, the use of the Greek adjective whole uh, further indicates that John intends to include all people in his designation. So the death of Jesus on the cross was a death for the sins of all people. Jesus substituted himself for the sins of all humanity. That, of course, does not mean that everyone is going to be saved. That's called universalism, and that's not biblical. This verse is simply teaching that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, meaning the sins of all of John's intended readers, and by extension of all believers, but Jesus is also the propitiation for the sins of all humanity. Hang with me. This means that the sins of all people, all people anywhere and everywhere, were imputed to Christ on the cross. Jesus satisfied the legal debt of sin for all, such that all humanity is savable should they meet God's condition for salvation, which is repentance from sin, and faith in Jesus Christ. So 1 John 2.2 makes an overt statement concerning the extent of atonement. It is, in my opinion, according to biblical interpretation, for the whole world. Now, universal provision is not to be equated with universal application. Just because the atoning sacrifice for Christ is sufficient for every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever lived, is alive, or will ever be born does not mean that every man, woman, boy, and girl will be born again. Only those who respond by repenting from sin and putting their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ will be born again. So we can say it this way, that the atoning sacrifice for Jesus is available to all 
but it is applied only to the lives of those who respond in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Are you with me, church? Now, in the Southern Baptist Convention, there are two camps. There are those who believe in, in, uh, in this being limited atonement. They're alive and well in the Southern Baptist Convention. In fact, there's some of those sprinkled out at Liberty Baptist Church. And you know what? That's okay. But there are others that believe, like I do, that this has to mean all the world because I, I, I can't do evangelism without looking someone in the eye and saying, God loves you, and God sent His Son Jesus to die for you. And if you would uh, turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, you can be born again. I can't see it any other way, and so I can't accept the limited atonement. I struggle with that. But here's what we need to make sure we don't do. We do not use these theological debates as a source of division. We've got enough protesters in this world that want to sit on their knee or sit on their rear end, and we don't need any Christian protesters. We need proclaimers. We need men and women who will proclaim good news of the gospel and let a sovereign God who alone can draw men and women and boys and girls to himself decide who is going to respond in faith. But we need to repent because we're not saying the good news of the gospel. Our least of our worries is whether or not we believe limited and unlimited. What we need to major on is getting the good news out there and let God be God and may we be faithful as the body of Christ. John said, guys, you are called to live different. If you profess to know Christ, then you're called to walk in His holiness. Set apart, different from. But I realize we're not there yet. We're going to fall. But understand this. As a child of God, when you fall, you have an advocate. His name is Jesus, the righteous one. He comes to your defense when that accuser goes before a holy God and wants to wipe you out. But not only do you have an advocate, Jesus, the righteous one, he can be that advocate because he is the one who died in your place and shed his spotless blood and paid the penalty in full for your salvation. And so, dear church, we not only can know that and receive it and walk in the confidence of Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Not because we're perfect, not because we grow to be without sin, but because we have been forgiven, the bondage of sin has been broken, but because we have an advocate within us that convicts us and leads us toward righteousness, and we have an advocate at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf day and night simply because we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's good news. So John is saying, don't you think for a minute you're without sin because all of us are sinners. John is saying, don't you claim to ever reach an elite position of sinless perfection and thinking you're better than somebody else because we're not. But understand this, don't you ever live in bondage and make the death of Christ and, and His resurrection cheap and the power of your salvation cheap because once He saved you, the penalty was paid in full. And now daily He sets you free from a lifestyle of sin. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. We have an advocate. He hadn't lost a case and He won't lose you. Let's pray. Father, help us continue to strive to live a life that brings you glory.
we struggle with our own sinfulness. We know that. And as long as this old unredeemed flesh is real, as long as we live in a broken world system, and as long as there's an enemy that entices and attacks, at times at least we're going to fall short in thought and word or deed. But Father, I thank you that our salvation was not gained by our goodness, nor is it lost by our sinfulness. Thank you that when you rescued us, you did all the work from start to finish. And thank you, Father, that that you promised that the work that I've begun in you as my child, I will continue and I will complete. Help us to keep our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, the one who initiated this relationship but the one who promises to finish it and complete it. So there will be a day we'll be changed and we'll be like Jesus. But until then, Father, help us strive daily, not just to say we're in the light, but to live in the light as He is in the light. Help our lives reflect the change that Jesus brings. Give us courage and boldness to proclaim the reason for our salvation and your goodness and your grace, but how Jesus paid the penalty in full and how we have power within us not to sin. We don't have to. When we do, we choose to. But Father, thank you when we mess up as children of God. You love us too much not to convict. You desire us to repent return Father I thank you that when we pray that prayer of repentance forgiveness is sure our advocate is interceding not according to our merit but according to his accomplished work on the cross and we're clothed in his righteousness give us courage give us boldness even though we're still in the process of becoming like Christ in character and conduct in the mighty name of Jesus we pray Amen